So Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 is where we're going to be at in a second. But what I'd like you to do is go to verse 1. Go to verse 1 of chapter 1. Um, and we'll be citing that in a second. We are continuing our jet tour of the book of Revelation. A jet tour is a fast study. It is a study not designed to give you all the details. It is not designed to give you great depth, although at times I'll try to show you some aspects of depth. But if there is anything that we study and you would like more information, contact me. I'll either give you references or I will send you as much information through some of the commentaries I can cut and paste for you. And so my hope, my goal is to make the book of Revelation as understandable as possible. Many years ago, we went, by, went through the book of Revelation word by word, verse by verse. But what we're doing here is a jet tour. And like I said last week, I think this is a biblical approach. I think it's a allowable approach. And so I'm hoping it is a blessing to you. We started this study when we, we began with verse 1 last week. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1, and it says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are here, that was the title. And it's Jesus who is giving this revelation. This isn't just about Jesus being unveiled. It's about Jesus telling us. And he says, which God has given to him, him being Jesus, to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And that line right there, things which must soon take place, was one of the many Old Testament lines and I sent out to the church, and some of you have commented how you appreciate it, how there are numerous, how I think there are at least, at least um, three, four, five hundred references, and I can't remember the exact number right now, to the Old Testament. And that was one of them from the book of Daniel. The idea of that which must come place, that which must come about. This is, this is a book about the future. And when you start studying the book of Revelation, you get excited that right from the beginning, it's telling you, we're going to tell you all these exciting things. And for those of you who have studied it, you know that once we get into it, there's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Can't wait to get into that. And then you deal with these locusts that are just bizarre. It's something out of a beam horror movie. Then we're going to get into the image of the dragon and perhaps the clearest explanation in all of scripture of how of how satan was in the garden of eden do you ever think about it It comes from the book of revelation and then we're going to get into the beast who we understand is the antichrist and so many fascinating judgments so many types of of pieces of information that are just mind-boggling when you get into the seal judgments the trumpet judgments and then the bowl judgments as we've said 25 percent of the world dies in the seal judgments 33 percent of the world dies in the trumpet judgments and then nearly almost the entire world dies in the bowl judgments and so man you start saying this book is fascinating i can't wait to get into it and then all of a sudden, bang, you hit a brick wall. Because before we can get into the future, before we can get into those judgments, we need to deal with what is. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. And this was the outline of the book. And the outline of the book was basically what he has seen, and then we said what is, chapters 2 and 3, 
and then what will be in chapters 4 through 22. So obviously, the majority of this book is about future, what will be, but this morning we come to chapters 2 and 3. And yes, because it's a jet tour, we're going to get chapters 2 and 3 done today. And we are going to go through the seven churches of Revelation. And I have on your sermon notes there that I call this Christ's evaluation of the church. And let me just read some verses to you. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I was going to put this up on the screen. I'm going to show you a map in a second. But I want you to be reading along so that you get this feel and understanding. So please, turn to your Bibles, chapter 2, verse 1, and see if you notice a pattern. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. And then jump down to verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So do you notice that? We went from singular to plural. Verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. And go down to verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. And then jump down to verse 17. Let him, he was in ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right. And then you jump down to verse 29. He was in ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3, verse 1, to the church uh, in Sardis, right. And then verse 6, he was in ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right. He, verse 13, he was in ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then finally, in verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right. And then we jump down to verse 22, he was in ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that last line sometimes has more information with it, but a lot of times it's just real brief. This is the picture. If... Um, we said from chapter 1, John was on this island. It was a penal colony. And we note that this is what's called Asia Minor during this day. And it's now modern-day Turkey. And here are these seven churches. And it was believed that John was the pastor slash apostle to these seven churches. And that he was visited on this island by representatives of all seven churches. I don't know if you ever said that. And like I said last week, we believe this is on a Sunday that he gets this message, but when he actually gives us to them, we don't know. But we believe that, each, that, the, that there's this circular route that was, that, was, that was covered. So when we come to this, again, because we've already done the detailed study, I'm just telling you what this is about. This is about Jesus Christ doing his evaluation of the churches and the churches i believe of the entire church age i believe this is one of the most important sections of scripture in the entire new testament and so if you're here today you are blessed because this is no hyperbole and i truly believe this is so important i put my money where my mouth is or whatever if that using that expression is because there's a reason our church maybe almost for the past decade has used chapters two and three for communion because in chapters two and three how you evaluate a church is given there are all kinds of opinions on what people want in a church 
but the only thing that matters is what Jesus says. And it's critical that we understand that, and I'll come back to that over and over and over. Because when we look at what Jesus says, we need to know this is what is necessary for us as a church and as individuals to pass judgment. Every believer is going to be judged. And it's sort of like a little test, and I have recognized, you know, I still have a student in my house and constantly taking tests. And there's the reality that when someone takes a test, there's the question that teachers often get, hey, test is next Friday, the teacher says, and the hands raise, what's going to be on the test? What's going to be on the test? Well, this is literally as if Jesus heard you saying, well, what is judgment going to be all about? And Jesus is basically saying, these are the things that judgment for believers regarding reward is going to be. But also, there's a reality that's a little scary here in the sense that there are people in a church that are not born again. And one of the things that comes out of this study, which we've done in the past, is shockingly come to the reality that Jesus knew that there would be people in a church who are not born again. And that's why it's always good for you to go over the gospel about faith alone, Christ alone, Jesus is God and man who died on the cross, rose from the dead, and by faith alone, you've committed to that. Faith is not mere agreement. It is a commitment that results in you being a changed creature, a new individual. If you are somebody that is saying that you're a believer in Jesus Christ and there's been no transformation... This is just a warning. I'm just trying to let you understand so that when you come to judgment, that you're not surprised. You need to realize that there is a required transformation. You need to be born again. Call out to God. If you have cried out to him before, keep crying out so that you would see that. It isn't like you're being zapped. It isn't like all of a sudden you're getting some type of numb kind of feeling that all of a sudden you start to have a desire for God's word. You see it change in your behavior and you begin to act differently and you begin to think differently because so much of the new testament talks about having the mind of christ the thinking process changes so that you understand that you have changed and you don't think like the world anymore and i just want you to understand that as we go into this text that jesus recognizes there are believers and unbelievers in his church now, here's what we're going to do. What we're going to do is we're going to go through six summary points. So you have your sermon notes. I talk about summary points. And basically, I had them arbitrarily come together and try to say, if I'm going to teach this, and, and I'm going to teach this even perfectly before communion today, what top six points, what points would be the best? And I just came up with these six. So each one of these has a key word. And the very first word is this one. Angelos, that's the Greek word. Uh, many of you would know it by angels, okay? The word angel. And the reason I want you to see this first and foremost is because it is the word that you see kicks off every letter to the angel, to the angelos. And it's very important right from the beginning that we realize who is this angelos. The word in Greek, is a word that means messenger, envoy, angelic being. It is used of human envoys in Luke 9, spirit beings in Luke 1, 
good angels in Hebrews 1 and evil spirits in chapter um, 2 of 2 Peter and then also verse 6 of the book of Jude. Why do I want you to see this right from the beginning is because I believe that the word here is appropriately translated angels, but we sometimes don't understand that the word could be just with an understanding of messenger. And if you would have understood it as messenger, you may not think that that this is an angelic being. So my point is, the angel is a human messenger for each church. And I think right from the beginning, right from the beginning, God is telling us what is important is that these are churches, ecclesia, called out assemblies that are made up of human people. And so my professor in seminary, Dr. Thomas, who's written the premier commentary on this, says that the issue of messengers' identification has been discussed in conjunction with their first message mentioning in chapter 1. Now, if we were going to do a detailed study, we would have, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 20, when it says in verse 20 of chapter 1, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which is on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, or the seven messengers, we would have resolved that, where you would have already been up to speed. But let me just do it now, because you know, obviously we're doing a jet tour. And Thomas goes, it was concluded that the seven were men who represented their churches, but not in the sense of being sole leaders of the individual churches. There's no, there's no expression here that these people are bishops. They might be leaders amongst the leaders, but there is no mention of them being bishops, but they were moral representatives, so to speak, who as individuals epitomized the conditions of the churches they represented. And I think that's really important because... The, what is often missed is that these messages are often to the singular, to the individual. And he was to take this then message back to the entire church. Now, Thomas, in addressing that, some people think, oh, these are angelic beings, like these are guardian angels. Why we shouldn't think that that is true? And he gives up two reasons that really go into the context. And I want you to listen to this, because this is a good way for you to learn how to study. And he says, basically... If you look at the context, the view that these are angels encounters very, very serious difficulties. One, the complexity of the communication process is one thing that raises problems with it. What are you talking about? Well, remember, when we just read in chapter 1, it's a message from Jesus, from God to Jesus, to an angel, then it's going to John. And now, if you're saying that it's going to John, who's a human being... And I believe the angel in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 1, are angelic beings. Now you're saying it's going back to another angel. And that just doesn't make sense. So in the context, it just really makes it complex. Because if this was a guardian angel, now the guardian angel has to turn around and tell the humans. So it's more likely that this is emphasizing a human being. Um, and just as a note... The word angelos is used like of John the Baptist. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 says, Behold, I send my angelos ahead of you, my angel ahead of you. Well, John the Baptist wasn't an angelic being. He was a messenger. And then in the book of James, talking about the the spies, the spies that helped Rahab, the spies were human people. 
And in, in the book of James, in Ch James chapter 2, verse 25, it says, In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers, or the angelos, and sent them out by another way. So my point is I'm trying to get you to see in the context that just continues to make sense that this is a, a human individual who's getting this message. And then finally, this is really important that you understand this, Thomas goes on to say, the even more decisive consideration against the view of guardian angels lies in the sinful conduct of what these angels are accused. Most of the rebukes in chapters 2 and 3 are second-person singular. You catch that? Most of the rebukes are second-person singular. Messages that first look at the individual messengers and presumably through them to the churches they represent. Well, unfallen angels, he goes on to say, do not sin. Neither are they in need of repentance as these messengers are. All right? So all of that is, I think these are moral representatives. I think it's probably putting on the emphasis right at the beginning that these evaluations are coming to human beings who need to either continue in their behavior or to shake things up and some of them get repent or some of them to actually get born again. Um, some of the churches, as we'll see. So, very first point, dealt with humans coming from angels. And sets the tone. We're talking about humans. The second key word is, uh, is a word that I'm putting in this because it's not in the text, amazingly. It's this word, Jesus, the name of our Savior. And the reason I say that is because in chapter 1 last week, we went through verses 10 through 18, and I said that there was an incredible description that we could do months in detail on describing Jesus. And here, interestingly enough, is when all of a sudden we come to, to each one of these descriptions, we begin to see an incredible understanding of Jesus walking amongst his churches and the same descriptions from chapter one are now used individually for every one of these churches. And so this is the point I wanna make. The description of Jesus as judge at each church is imposing, that's the word we used last week, and worthy to worship, worthy to worship. Like I said, all of these descriptions are tied into the Old Testament most of the descriptions are tied to the Old Testament. Most of the descriptions also are tied to Yahweh. And I would encourage you, if you want to go further, you want to go deeper, it's amazing how this ties to the Old Testament and how it emphasizes Jesus using the Old Testament covenant name, Yahweh, would be understood as the Lord. And I just think it's an incredible study. And let's just... Let's just look at some of these descriptions. And so you see in chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. That's Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 8, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life, says this. And, all right, so who else is that but Jesus? Verse 12, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. That's Jesus who, whether it's his word or his judgment, has the, two sharp, the sharp two-edged sword. Chapter 2, verse 18. The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. 
Then you go down to chapter 3, verse 1. He was in, has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Okay, so he's the one that's in control. Verse 7 of chapter 3. He was holy, who was true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. And then in verse 14, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God, says this. As David Jeremiah, some of you like to listen to his sermons on the radio, he says this, each description, each description gives us an image of the resurrected Christ. He says, the resurrected Christ appeared much different to John. He had striking white hair that suggested the age, wisdom, and dignity befitting a judge. His eyes were like a flame of fire, eyes from whom nothing is hidden, eyes that will judge all mankind according to Psalm 11 and Hebrews 4. His feet were like fine brass, another symbol of judgment in scripture. John described two features of Christ's mouth, the sound and the sword, drowning out all other voices. His voice evoked thoughts of roaring waterfalls, piercing soul and spirit. The sword represents the word of God as Ephesians 6 and Hebrews 4 teaches. And when Christ returns, he will slay his enemies by his word, according to Revelation 2 and 19. Now, here's an interesting little fun fact. I couldn't find a link as to like, okay, why did Ephesus get this or Smyrna get this? I thought somewhat they could be interchangeable, but it just is a constant reaffirmation that Jesus is in control. Jesus is the one who's knowledgeable. And like anyone who gets an evaluation and says, hey, you know, this, you don't know this or you don't know that. This is my motive. This is what I was thinking. The thing that we must understand is that Jesus is perfect in his evaluation. He's perfect in his analysis. He's perfect in his assessment of each of these churches. So with that understanding, we recognize right from the beginning how important it is that we recognize who is doing the evaluation. Third, as we come, the next key word is a number. It is the number seven. And so what we don't, um, what we see here is we see a reference to seven in verse 20. Look at verse 20. As for uh, chapter one, chapter one, as for the mystery of the seven stars, you saw my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven churches are the angels of the seven churches. Well, seven is key. And this is what I want you to see with this. I believe the seven churches are therefore a complete picture of the church in the present age from then to now. Seven is not a random number, but the idea of completion or perfection. And in choosing seven, he is trying, I believe Jesus is showing us this is the complete picture of the entire church age. Yes, John would have been the pastor slash apostle to all these churches, but he would have been an apostle to other churches as well. Why just seven? Okay, and this is where Thomas goes on. He says a good bit of discussion has centered on why John just chose seven churches and not more. There were certainly more churches in, in the area than the seven churches in the first century of Rome's province of Asia. Though he may have chosen only seven because seven is the number that, that denotes completion as sweet believes, the likelihood is greater that he chose them because they are typical assemblies with regard to their histories and spiritual states. And these adequately represented the various spiritual situations of the surrounding churches at the time. Then, too, they were probably the ones where John enjoyed the closest relationship. So I believe what you have here is, to make this clear, I think you have the picture of the number seven used through scripture to give a completion. 
And then John knowing these churches, and it all works together to bring out the idea of these give us a very complete picture. And there is nothing when we go through these seven churches that indicate that this is the first, second century for Ephesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's some people, and it's an ongoing um, thought that gets thrown up every few years that people believe that this is how the church has gone through the last 2,000 years. So Ephesus would be the first two, 300 years of church history. And then Smyrna might be the next couple hundred years. And then Pergamum would, might be like the eighth through the years 800 through the years 1200. I'm just arbitrarily making that up because what, basically that's exactly what they do too. And, and there is no indication that this is successive time periods. I just want you to think if Jesus has given us this picture of seven, it's a complete picture. Each, each community gives us a little insight into maybe a particular situation that I believe can be applied around the world at any time. And this is what I've said before, where we might say we're like the church in Philadelphia and a church over in Afghanistan right now could be like the church at Smyrna. Or you could have a church be like Ephesus or you could be that's right down the street. However, every church is going to be evaluated by the good and the bad things that Jesus is looking for. Um, each one of these churches, interestingly enough, has a unique history. Um, Ephesus was a church that was in the Aegean Harbor, um, the Aegean Sea, and it was considered the loveless church. But it was one that contained one of the seven wonders of the world, which is amazing. These, these churches were in very advanced cities, and it's interesting how they were strategically located. So think about it. When you think about the church at Ephesus, think about the fact that it was there with one of the seven wonders of the world. Um, it, it was a city that a lot of people visited. A lot of people would have went to it because it had one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. Paul was the founding member, uh, founding pastor, apostle to that church, and we know that it gets a key letter in the church. Um, the, ch the church um, gets the first part of the, what's called the circular letter, the letter of Ephesus, the, the letter to the Ephesians, we call it. Smyrna, if you look at chapter 2, verse 8, Smyrna was the home of Homer and the temple Athena. It was a beautiful, bustling seaport, and it was um, in the second century where they had one of the most prominent New Testament um, uh, workers, Polycarp. We still read some of his ancient writings, and he was murdered there um, in the second century. If you go to chapter 3, verse 12, you have Pergamos, uh, or Pergamum, depending upon how your Bible translated it. This was Rome's capital. This was Rome's capital in Asia, and it was a, a major cultural hub that housed the library, revolving, um, rivaling the Alexandrian Library. Those of you who know your history know that one of the greatest tragedies in all of human history is when the library at Alexandria burned down, and this had a great library. I don't know what happened to its library, but next, Thyatira, chapter Three, 2 verse 18 to the church in Thyatira. Thyatira was founded under Alexander the Great. And we've been studying the book of Daniel on Tuesday nights and talking about Alexander the Great. Well, he founded Thyatira. And it was noted for its trade, particularly its purple dye. Lydia, one of um, Paul's converts from the book of Acts, came from Thyatira. 
You go down to chapter 3, you see Sardis. Sardis was the ancient capital of the Lydian kingdom, and it was situated atop a plateau and sustained a series of foreign conquests. Several years ago when we were doing the um, background for communion, I took a picture of Sardis, and it's on a very strategic hill where it would have been very impossible to attack it. And so Sardis was a very, very strong military fort. Philadelphia, you see in chapter 3, verse 7, was the gateway to the east. It was renowned for its trade in grapes, textiles, and leather goods. And then um, Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 14, it was the ancient capital of Phrygia, and it gained wealth through trade and banking. And it's known for its medical school and its costly fabrics. Nothing remains of any of these churches today. We can go and we can find ruins, and that's what I've shown pictures of. There's ruins of these churches. Um, basically, when the Turks, the, the, the um, Islamic people, took over in 1453 in, in Turkey, they basically destroyed the, even the ruins to the best that they could on these sites. And what I want you to recognize is that every one of these are going to be particularly taken with a unique situation, but it's going to be able to be applicable for all of us. And so as Thomas says, when Jesus counsels these believers, like if you look at the church at Laodicea, to buy from him gold refined in fire, white garments to hide their nakedness, and salve to heal their eyes, he's likely playing off the three major industries in Laodicea, banking, wool, and ophthalmology. It seems likely that the Laodiceans would have known that all of those resources, as they dealt with them, would have been able to have been jumped off to make the spiritual point that, that Jesus does, or as I'm going to say, John does. Okay? So there, we got the number seven. Now we go to another number, and we're going to do this a little different, and it's three. And as I'm putting together a theology of this, why does three come in? Because when I begin to group... When I begin to look at the seven churches, I group them into three categories. And the three categories basically are three groupings for an honest evaluation of self and church. And the three categories are is that you got churches that only get commended, churches that only get condemned, and then churches that get both commendation and condemnation. So Smyrna in Philadelphia, commended. Sardis, Laodicea, Condemned, Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, get a mixture. Just pointing out that some churches, all good, all bad. Some, like in life, things aren't always the, the, the best. Here is where, in getting ready for communion, and getting ready to always evaluate your life, I want to take you through, first, the commendations. And when you listen to these, think about whether you are doing them and if not you need to improve because these are the things that you need to be doing and if you're doing them continue to do them this is what jesus holds as important and and so look at chapter 2 chapter 2 verse 2 so he says to the church at ephesus i know your deeds and toil and perseverance so he's really thankful that they are working. They work, they work, they work. And he says that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. So what Jesus holds important is a church that's constantly pointing out doctrinal error. 
Look at verse 6. Yet this you do have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Well, we did a church history on this. The Nicolaitans were people who were compromising. They were saying, you can be a believer. Oh, you can be a believer and you can live with someone. Oh, you're a believer and you can get drunk and it doesn't matter. Oh, you're a believer and it doesn't really matter. Well, hate is a pretty strong word. And I've always looked at it. This is what Jesus says is important. Nicolaitans, you need to be hated. And so Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for hating them. Then we go down into chapter 2, verse 9. Here's a church, Smyrna, and they are being persecuted. And he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. And it's very important that we understand this, that they are a poor church. He never condemns a church for not having money. What he does do is condemn them if they're not being faithful. But Smyrna was a faithful church. And Smyrna was someone that under tribulation and facing Satan. And he says in verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. And so they get commended for staying faithful. And we did a long study on faith. Chapter 2, verse 13. When we talk to Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And we believe that they had a strong um, presence of Satan. It was satanic and under persecution. Once again, they stayed faithful. And then go over to chapter 3, verse 8, and we, um, oh, excuse me. Um, chapter 2, verse 18, verse 19, he says, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than f- at first. And so you have to look about the fact that they've got works, they love, whether it's God or, or, or man, and that they have faith and service and perseverance. And that some of the things they did later were even better than they did when the church first started. Then you get to chapter 3, verse 8, the church of Philadelphia. He says, I know your deeds. I've come before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. You're a small church. No one ever condemns a church for being small. And, you know, when we get literature all the time on how to make your church grow, how to make your church bigger, you know, as if that is what Jesus is going to matter, matter to Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're a big or small church. What matters is if you're faithful. And so he says, I know your deeds. I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. So they can't be shut, and they have a little power, and have, you've kept my word and not denied my name. So we talk about what it means to be faithful to his word and not denying his name. And then lastly, the last commendation is in verse 10, same church. He says, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing. So the idea is they've been faithful, and they've kept on persevering. Look, ministry is hard. Ministry is difficult. Ministry beats you down. And you say, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and I've done this. And we have so many faithful people that work in so many different areas. Um, I was just so amazed, and I want to make it just as I was told even this week. You know, in our bulletin this week, we're grateful for and praying for all the people who work in the nursery. There's like 35 people that are on that list. There's 35 people that are on that list. I was like almost half the adults of our church. And so it's hard and it's difficult when you give your time to work in the nursery. I get that. And in so many areas, whether it's Awana or whatever ministry you're involved in. And so all of these things are commendations. 
Well, what about the condemnations? What are the things that Jesus doesn't like? All right, so you go to chapter 2, verse 4, and he says to Ephesus, I have this against you, that you've left your love at first. Your agape love at first. And it's open-ended, and we said we can't define it. Is, is it love towards God, love towards people? And I say because he's not defined it, you got to keep it at both. Ultimately, everything, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love our neighbor as ourselves. And so there you go. And love sacrifices. And, and you need to say, are you doing sacrifices for God, for other people? You go, but they weren't. And, which is amazing when you look at the church at Ephesus, they were doing all these good things, and yet they weren't ha- driven by a love for God. That's why in communion, I continually try to take us as a church through this exhortation and make sure you're in love with Jesus. Right now, ask yourself, do you love Jesus? All right? And it's not just like pie in the sky. It often comes out, will you sacrifice? Will you humble yourself? Will you do the things he wants you to do? Then you see in chapter 2, verse 14, the church at Pergamum is, is given a condemnation. He goes, because he says in verse 14, I have a few things against you because you, there you have some who, keep, who, who hold the teaching of Balaam and have kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat the things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Well, we talked about the idea they were compromising. They were a compromising church with doctrine and practices, which was very similar to Thyatira. Go over to chapter 2, verse 20, when he says this, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they may commit acts of immorality and things sacrificed to idols. So there is another condemnation. And then you see... In chapter 3, verse 2, Sardis, it says, wake up. It's a a church that was asleep. And they were needing to strengthen the things that remain. And when we studied this, it was dealing dealing with the fact that this is a church that had we didn't think was proposing the gospel anymore. And how important it is for us to continually keep before our church the gospel. A spiritually alert church. And and so then we also see... um, Probably the hardest one is in Laodicea chapter 3, verse 20, when it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Well, why is he saying that? He says, uh, because basically, we believe they weren't a safe church. And when Jesus is is coming to them and basically talking to them, it says that he's going to spit them out. We're going to come back to that in a second. Because in verse 17, he says, you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you don't know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And we went into great detail. Amazingly, you can have a church with people who aren't saved. Pastors probably not saved. Leaders aren't saved. People aren't saved. And some of you have visited churches from a historical Protestant background where they just no longer teach the gospel, no longer hold to the word of God. And amazingly, what happens is, yeah, they have a building, yeah, they have a doctrinal statement, but nobody there believes it. So that was the condemnation. So that's the list, and those, that's the grid to take yourself through. Now, here we go. Let's go through the next word. The word is rewards, and the reason this is so important is because every one of these churches is given something that is unsurpassed, absolutely incredible, 
something that, that God wants you to realize is an incentive. And when people come and say, oh, I'm holy, I'm not going to try and go for rewards, I'm saying, well, then you're ignoring Jesus. Because Jesus constantly talked about rewards. The New Testament writers talk about rewards. And here we get rewards. And the rewards in each evaluation are unsurpassed in all of human existence. The rewards are worth pursuing. I know people who spend all kinds of time in all kinds of activities. And I want you to ask yourself how much you're pursuing these rewards. Let's quickly go through them. So we go into, we go into like Ephesus and you jump down and it says in verse seven, he was an ear to, has an ear. Let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's a reward. Verse 11. He was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. <laughs> um, verse 17. He was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give them a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. You get this incredible personal relationship. There's a promise about God knowing you personally. Okay. Chapter 2, um, verse, um, <laughs> verse 25, um, excuse me, verse 26. This is perhaps one of the most incredible ones. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will grant authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Wait a second, I thought this was only about Jesus. Wait a second, this is about people who Jesus distributes his power to. So he says... And he shall, verse 27, he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to, the, are to pieces. And I, as, as I also receive authority from my father and I will give him the morning star, he was an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Incredible ruling function, which fits with what Jesus talked about earlier in the gospels about how giving responsibility to believers of the church age over the different cities. Chapter three, verse five. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I mean, eternal life is secure for you. Eternal life is secure for you. You know, I keep seeing pictures over the last 24 hours. For some reason, I keep seeing pictures of the pyramids and how the pharaohs tried to keep all their wealth. You can't keep anything. You're not keeping anything on this earth, people. You're working all day and all night for stuff of this world. You're keeping none of it. Only what matters is what goes ahead. And so you get eternal life. That's the reward. And a reward that it's incredibly rich. And then you jump down. Chapter 3, verse 10. He says, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing. I believe this is a promise to be out of the tribulation. Out of the hour of testing. We studied that, which is coming upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. And then chapter 2 Verse 21, he overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. And, and as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. For some reason, Jesus keeps saying, listen, you're going to have a key role throughout eternity. Key role out of eternity. You want to move up the corporate ladder. You want to move up whatever high society ladder. You want to move up whatever. Jesus is saying, look, you want to be a success. You want to be a winner at the end. You're on my team. And, and the, do the things that I'm saying. So I'm just telling you, we've gone through the condemnations, commendations. You want to do the commendations. You don't want to do the condemnations. Why? Let's go to the last key word. The last key word is this one, judgments. Judgments. 
This is a word that I believe really typifies so much that you don't want to miss in all of this. And all of these, the judgments need to be feared so that correction, corrective action is taken. Listen, Jesus isn't playing games. And as we go through each one of these, look at chapter 2, verse 5. Remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. Jesus closes churches. I've seen it. I know it. I've been the pastor here for 25 years. In our area alone, since I've been the pastor, I've watched Jesus close 16 churches, 16 Protestant churches, 16 Protestant churches. Sometimes you go down, you see buildings, and they have new names on them. The reason they have new names is because the old names were closed down, all right? They were shut down. And so I thank God he hasn't closed our doors. I'm so thankful that he hasn't because we're going to continue to do these things that God holds important till, it, till, till as long as we can, until Jesus returns. So we want to be faithful. We want, uh, we want to recognize that these judgments, Jesus is not playing games. He's not playing games. And so when you go to verse 16 of chapter 2, okay, it says, Therefore repent or else I'm coming to you and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus will make war with the church. He will, I think this is a tie-in to, to, to closing it down as well. You go to um, Thyatira, and he says, some of them, I believe, will be thrown into the tribulation. I think the church is not going, genuine believers aren't going into the tribulation, but I think people who profess to be believers and aren't, he's warning them when he says, in verse 22, behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And then you go into chapter 3 with Sardis in verse 3. So remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I am going to come to you. Using the imagery of thief that's used for the rapture, but it's also used for his judgment on his closing a church. And then as we see in verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16, perhaps the harshest is, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's a picture of judgment, I believe, of people not making it into heaven. He is spitting them out of his mouth. Harsh words. And you know, like I said, you know, there are people that will say, hey, if you want to have church growth, go around, do a survey, find out what the people of the community want in a church. Well, I get it. You know, there's an idea like maybe they don't feel comfortable wearing certain clothes or they, you know, certain hours or whatever. I, I understand some of that. But the reality of it is, is it's very important for us to always keep focused and not let anybody pressure us as to what they deem important for a church. It is important that we look at what Jesus wants for a church. And we look at important understand that what he condemns, we stay away from and, and to fear it. And so... That's where we're at, where we have a jet tour here. And like I said, lots of, lots of depth possibility, but we only scratch the surface. And these six major points, whether you're talking about angels, Jews, number seven, the number three, rewards, judgments, I'm hoping all of you want to go deeper into it. Next week, we start to get into what is the things that come next. But for now, I just want us to always be humble and thinking about this and especially regarding the fact first and foremost do i know jesus do i have faith in jesus as i've been using the simple gospel approach of abcs of salvation do i admit i'm a sinner do i believe that jesus is the only answer that he's god and man who died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins and c do i call upon his name 
That's what we want. I want you to be born again. My hope, my passion is that none of you face God. And as someone told me even before service, there's a lot of people that think so different about church and so different about what it's going to be like when they face Jesus. And when they perceive that even you talking about heaven and hell, that they're talking about fire and brimstone. It's like I'm just trying to, trying to warn people. I'm trying to be as loving and kind so that people who are recognizing that there is only one chance of this life. You might get 40 years. You might get 70 years. You might get 80 years. Or today could be your last day. And I just want people to recognize you must be born again. Second, I want us to be faithful as a church. I think these are the things that we must look at as important. We must never, never, ever forget this is the evaluation that we must hold as a standard. And I pray that even today as we go through communion that you do just that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've given us what Jesus deems important. I pray, God, that we are people who recognize, recognize that any of these sins are things that we could fall into. And, and how some of these expressions are open-ended because we could be people that aren't going to toil. We're not going to be doing the deeds that you want us to do. We're going to be finding ourselves living for the world when you don't want us living for the world. And so obviously there are more specifics and greater depth in all of this study. But I'm praying, God, that as we now take time and come to communion for our church, that there is a sense where your spirit is working through us. And as all of these matters flow through our minds, that there'd be a willingness to repent and a willingness to come to you and to strengthen our church. For we look at communion as something that is commanded and instructed for us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.